okay, you get someone, you evangelize them successfully. You want to disciple them. Disciple has become a verb at some point um, in recent evangelical history. What do you do with them then? Other than tell them to go out and do exactly the same thing that you've done, which is just bring more people in. Bring more people in to do what? To be disciples of Jesus. So what does being a disciple mean? It means being a disciple maker. And we just get stuck in this endless loop of disciples, making disciples, making disciples, making disciples, with no real robust understanding of what being a disciple is, um, other than maybe kind of individual piety, do your quiet time, sin less, um, and no bigger understanding of what that means when you are faced with injustice. and welcome to this week's episode of About Abortion. I'm delighted to be joined today by a, a very special guest, Reese Laverty. Reese, have I pronounced your names correctly? You have, yes. Well, Reese is is you know well known enough to Brits, and then uh, you've pr- you've pronounced the V rather than putting in an F in the middle of my name. So, uh, full marks. For full marks. Oh, good. Yeah. T- and talk us through the name. So, Reese is Welsh, presumably. Reese is Welsh. My uh, great grandmother Clarice was the last uh, kind of meaningfully Welsh person in our family, so I was named sort of in honour of the Welsh side, and then. Uh, Laverty is uh, Irish gra- grandfather from Donegal, um, and supposedly if it's laverty with a v that suggests catholic extraction if it's laverty with two f's then that suggests protestant extraction and that is, holds true in my case yeah. okay i see right and I've, I've got irish roots as well brennan is a, an irish mm. if, if you go to ireland you'll you'll see brennan's bread everywhere we're like the hovis of uh <laughs> of ireland but nothing to do with me unfortunately i have no no bread fortune behind me it's um quite a common name in in ireland but um Funnily enough, when I first came across you, I know I know I've, I've been to your church. We didn't really speak at that time a few mm. years ago. But when I first came across you, Reese, I don't know if I told you this, but I just assumed you were American. <laughs> um, I came across you online and what you were writing, and uh, we'll we'll probably go into this in a little bit anyhow. But um, it seemed so unusual. It well, it is so unusual to see a Brit uh, saying the things you're saying and critiquing British evangelicalism so helpfully and with such incision. Uh, I just assumed you were American uh, <laughs> because of the sorts of things you're saying, and also because it was an American friend and supporter of ours um, who will be delighted that you're on the show today because oh. uh, she she actually put you into well she sent one of your blogs to me and I'd seen your blogs and I thought yeah it's great it's, it's so wonderful that an American's really got a heart for our our <laughs> British Isles and is you know really caring for us and taking the time to kind of share his thoughts from everything and then and then I realised that actually you were much closer than I realized. Um, but just just tell us a bit about what, what you're up to. I've obviously come across some of your writing. Just tell us, mm. what are you up to? What are you studying? What are you writing? Where can people find that stuff? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll take it as a compliment to be uh, confused with an American on this uh, on this occasion. And I love it's Americans. Definitely a compliment. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Americans. I dislike America. That's my subtle take, having, uh, <laughs> having been to America a few times uh, and working for an American organization um yes yeah, so um i work uh predominantly for 
uh, an organization called the Davenant Institute, um, which is uh, based primarily in the USA. And Davenant is 10 years old this year. Um, John Davenant is a sort of forgotten English reformer, um, but he was a, a huge figure in the kind of early um, Jacobean church. If anyone knows the Synod of Dort, which is one of the big reformed kind of gatherings in the 17th century, he was one of the men from the Church of England sent to that and just embodied a um, generous, ironic attitude towards Christian theology, drawing on both scripture and the best of the Christian tradition. Um, and so he embodied what Davenant tries to do, which is retrieve the riches of the Protestant tradition to renew and build up the contemporary church. And so um, we publish books, uh, republish stuff that's been out of print for hundreds of years, modernized stuff. We publish new um, theological works. Um, uh, so I work partly on the editorial of the books. We have a journal called Ad Fontes, um, which tries to do that in a kind of quarterly print edition and more regular online stuff. And another podcast, I'm the senior editor there. Uh, and then we have Davenant Hall, which is our um, educational wing. We're trying to rebuild the medieval university for the digital age. Um, and we offer online classes and degree programs there. And I'm actually also a student in our Master of Letters program there as well. And um, so sort of learning on the job. Um, so that's that's what makes up most of my week. And then what you mentioned kind of on the writing side of things, um, I write a sub stack called The New Albion. Um, where I try to provide Christian commentary for a changed Britain. So very much kind of trying to bring the the um, riches of Christian thought and tradition, which I think are maybe sometimes neglected in uh, British evangelical thinking, bringing those to bear on cultural issues um, from a UK setting. There's a lot of Christian cultural commentary um, on the big issues facing the West and facing modern life from a US perspective. I think... Um, we need to remember to quote Morrissey, America is not the world. And um, when we discuss even the same issues in a UK setting as opposed to a US one, there will be massive differences. And I think often we just don't acknowledge that. And so I'm trying to do something of that in a distinctly British key. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we'll get on to that in just a second. But I just wanted to clarify before we go on any further. So obviously people can get your stuff at, at the, the New Albion. The, the other... Um, the, the college uh, the online learning and research and so all, all that you mentioned is is that based in this country or in america or both or what, what's the kind of geographical remit of what you're yes i mean davenant's uh, resources are available for anybody um anywhere um so I'm, I'm based in the uk i'm not in the us i'm in chesington on the very um fringe of south london um and our books are available uh from the davenant website but currently we print everything through amazon so you can order anything um anywhere um our journal at fontesjournal.com you can access our articles online hard copies are a bit expensive to ship to the uk for that but if you want to pay a hundred dollars a year for an international subscription then feel free um but you can take out an online subscription to access our subscriber stuff though a lot of it is also free and then our classes um and degree programs again they are largely fully remote um but we actually have a, a base in south carolina uh, in the blue ridge mountains um and if you enrolled in the degree program like i am you need to make a couple of trips there um over the course of your degree um and we actually have our first uh, sorry no, not our first how dare i and um, what is officially our third um uk um convivium which is what we call a conference because we like to be more convivial um being held at oak hill college uh on saturday the 20th of january uh where we'll be thinking about renewing british political theology um so we have a small but growing presence in the uk so come and join us in january at oak hill on the 20th um, and you can find info about that at uh, davenantinstitute.org yeah 
Okay, excellent. That that sounds very good. I'll see if I can get that myself if I'm allowed. That sounds that sounds excellent. Now um, we've already touched on on the UK US um, contrast, if you will, uh, relationship. Uh, hopefully, um, I wanted to base our conversation, if it's right with you, Reese, around four particular sayings that I come across a lot in British evangelicalism. Um, you could say that there are even objections to um, the work that I'm doing or, or the, the the drive that I think is important for us. I'd be, I'd be really interested to kind of get your take on them. Mm -hmm. And the first one really does speak to this uh, issue of uh, the contrast between ourselves and our cousins over the sea. Um, the first saying I'd like to get your response to, your reaction, uh, and this is I think without exaggeration, it, it could well be the most common reaction I get from church leaders mm -hmm. with regard to the issue of abortion. Uh, and it's something along the lines of, well, we definitely wouldn't want to do things the American way. <laughs> I think possibly that's the most common objection. So what do you understand by that saying? What's behind that? And, and how are we to respond to this idea of, well, we definitely don't want to be like the Americans when it comes to Christians responding to abortion, mm -hmm. so what, what I would what I would think someone would mean when they say that, and I want to steel man that as much as possible and understand that as a you know, with all generosity and as a, as a very sincere thing when it is said. Um, I think maybe what that boils down to is to say we don't want to feel that or see or uh, seem to have sold our souls on everything else in order to get change on abortion over the line. I mm. think that is, whether it's right or wrong, um, sincerely what a lot of English, British evangelicals feel when they look at the kind of single issue drive on abortion that American evangelicals in particular and Christians more broadly have had, they feel there is a, a selling of their soul, a compromising of their principles in order to... Um, succeed on the abortion issue that's that's what i would think people mean do you think that's a fair summary yeah i think that is that is as you say probably the most the, the the most generous uh reading i think often is the case i think that is i think when you look at the uh republican party in america it traditionally enjoys the support of um of evangelicals for example by and large um and we could go into this i don't know if we'll have time today but historically abortion has been one of those key issues that the Republican Party has 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 latched onto, um, but on other issues, uh, they've they've been far less bothered about whether their policy aligns with with or, or their um, representatives, the the, the the political membership um, aligns in, in in Christian ways at all. So I think that's I think that's right, and I think there's also a, a concern, isn't there, that together with that, together with selling your soul for for a one a single issue thing this idea that the gospel gets squeezed out by politics. I think that's mm -hmm. th this sense of the church forgets what she's there for mm -hmm. and becomes just another wing of a particular political party. Um, and um, do you think the, well, to what extent do you think we, we are the same and we have the same vulnerabilities or, um, or we fall into the same pitfalls as American Christians? And to what extent actually do you think we're really rather different and our set of problems are really rather different? What are the, what are the similarities? What are the differences? 
Yeah, I, 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 I mean, yeah, in principle, the same pitfalls could apply. Um, and to be clear, I'm not, I think there are people who have uh, sold their souls and failed to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way when it comes to, you know, kind of single issue campaigning in the US. And I think that there are many who haven't. Um, I don't think we're in danger of doing that in the UK. And um, I think we're, we, we would be quite the opposite. I think, so I've, I've steel manned and sort of generously put that position out there. Uh, and I've seen it earnestly put um i think often though when we step back and i think i, I and i would have taken that line at, at a certain point myself so looking back on myself and what was driving me when i thought that there is we've kind of danced around the edges of this as a as a source of humor um a distinct uh snobbery that basically any englishman and any brit will hold towards americans um that they are more trashy more vulgar louder stupider than us um and we don't like that <laughs> we don't like what it looks like when it enters the political realm um so i think um a lot of it simply comes down to a kind of snobbery um we don't want to look and sound like the americans do um and i think as well um a real thing i appreciate working with americans is that the american entrepreneurial spirit is a real thing mm. the can-do attitude um is deeply, deeply embedded in, you know, kind of Ameri American businessmen who are raking in millions and have become self-made men down to guys still living in trailers, but who are working on a side hustle. Um, they really get out there and do things. Um, in America, you start a new enterprise and within six months, you'll have a hundred people lining up to give you money to buy what you're selling. Um, in the UK, you try and start an enterprise and you've got a line of people telling you that's a stupid idea and this is why it won't work and this is why we don't need it. Um, and there are reasons for that. So, you know, America is the land of opportunity. Um, there is enough physical and institutional space to set new things up in America. Like you can literally buy land, go and set up the University of Dave Brennan and you'll have, you know, a, again, 100 people enrolled to get your kind of unaccredited wacko degree. Um, and it's easy, it's fairly easy to get that operation up and running. In the UK, it's hard to do. It's hard to set up new things, it's hard to set up new organizations uh, on a practical level, the money, the, that kind of thing. But also just institutionally, we don't think about making big institutional change. Because all of our institutions have been here for yeah. a, a thousand years, essentially. You know, why would I set something up when there's sort of something that does the same job and it's basically been here since the time of William the Conqueror? Um, so it, it, people will call it learned helplessness. There's this deep learned helplessness in the British psyche as a whole, let alone if that plays out within the evangelical psyche of just not doing new things, not setting things up. And so I think that. We look at our American cousins on abortion issues and yes, granted the real criticisms where they happen. Um, but I think if we examine ourselves and I examine myself when I was far more critical of the American approach to changing abortion legislation, there's a snobbery towards kind of vulgar Americans and a deep sense of um, starting new enterprises being um not really worthwhile because it probably won't work um so i think those are two of the kind of more pressing issues for us and more dangerous for us than um ending up selling our souls like the americans have yeah and i think i'd throw into that an another aspect which is this this perception we have of the american evangelical a sold out uncritical republican unthinking single issue etc 
uh, I believe, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, you, you've spent more time over there than I have. That perception is so deeply um, embedded in us because of really the, the, the largely left-wing, liberal, progressive media that depicts American evangelicals in that way. Um, I know a number of American evangelicals. I can't think of any that actually fit that bill of, oh, who cares about the gospel? We just want to get this political win. I don't know any like that. I, I'm mm -hmm. sure they are out there. You get pe all sorts of people everywhere. But you, you spent more time than I have over there. How how accurate is that perception even? I mean, let, I think we all agree that's something we don't want to be. We don't want to forget the gospel, forget our morals in every other area, become a single issue, sell our souls to a specific party. Um, how accurate is that? I mean, it would be it would be inaccurate to say that it's not. Uh, there's not some truth in it. Um, I think people's imaginations are heavily shaped by maybe having seen the movie Jesus Camp, mm. um, which mm. Dave's nodding, so he's seen that, which is. I saw a lot from a long time ago now. I think it's Bush era. Um, you know, this crazy Christian summer camp with this mad American Christian counselor woman who's getting all the kids to fall down, speaking tongues, and she's saying, Praise Jesus and end abortion. Like it's just kind of thrown in there, you know, kind of in the kind of dual, dual top billing along with kind of Jesus is Lord and end abortion. And that that just grates against so much of an English friend when he sees that. Um so that um, that does exist. Um and I'll admit my um experience of direct experience of american evangelicalism is you know somewhat self-selecting uh you know i work for a intentionally intellectual institutions so like most of my colleagues in the context in the states would not go to what one of my colleagues affectionately calls hot dog church which is the typical kind of american mega church you know what we think of um that said um i think you're right it is an excess or an extreme or one part of the spectrum of American evangelicalism, which is held up as universal by the media and particularly the media in, in the UK, when it wants you to think about this, it will just mm. take a couple of clips from the most extreme end of America and blow it up. It's kind of Louis Theroux level journalism mm. where America is a land of freaks. Um, and that's how Louis Theroux kind of made his career in the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm going to go to America and hang out with all the freaks. And the freaks exist. And America is a nation that creates freaks by just kind of it's built in. It's a feature, not a bug. Um, but the vast majority of American evangelicals, we're now into the debatable territory of exactly what is an evangelical in the US, what is it in the UK. But mm. broadly speaking, I still think this holds true, will be doggedly um anti-abortion but are also doing all the things which the left continually say um if you were really pro-life you would do this you would be there to help uh, mothers uh, you would be providing childcare. you'd be providing diapers you know that kind of thing they're all doing it mm. and um if roe v wade has taught us anything it's that you cannot do enough to please left-wing critics and supporters of abortion because they said all this stuff they said if you overturn roe v wade you're going to need to be there and be ready and all the evangelicals are already doing that anyway and then roe v wade is overturned and they say hey we're here we're doing the things we've been doing the things for a long time um and it's not it's not enough mm. yeah mm. yeah thank you um i i think uh even if those stereotypes do exist and those excesses do exist as you say the problem we have over here is almost the very opposite. I mean, mm -hmm. point out a single Christian or church or church leader in the UK, and I, and I mean that without exaggeration, show me one, 
that is too pro-life, you know, that's that's making too big. A th- I, I literally cannot think of one. Um, but before we move on, I want to just throw in a word of uh, of actually defense for the single issue Christian um, in, in a sense. I remember John mm-hmm. Piper saying something along the lines of um, being being sort of non-negotiably pro-life uh, is single issue in the way that a wife says to her husband that um, mar- fidelity is a single issue thing mm-hmm. in her marriage. Like y- y- you can't just commit adultery uh, as if that's a secondary issue within a marriage. And actually mm-hmm. in political terms, in moral terms, child sacrifice actually really is up there. I think we find it easier to see that in the past. We look at the transatlantic slave trade or um, or or you know, apartheid systems or, um, or indeed uh, the persecution, the Jews, the Holocaust. Christians in those areas, the ones who were faithful, actually did see that as the defining issue of the day. And they're quite happy to say, love Jesus and end whatever it is, slave trade, mm-hmm. uh, Holocaust, uh, racial uh, apartheid. And and I'm quite happy to say that, yeah, there's a lot more to being a Christian than love Jesus and end abortion. But if I were to pick one particular uh, <laughs> outworking, you know, that, that'd be up there. So, um, yes, definitely. of course, there's a wrong way of, of going about that. And we, we can't be defined by one issue. But I think in the UK, at the very least, we have to concede we've we haven't got that problem. I wanted to move on to uh, saying number two, mm-hmm. um, which is um, essentially we can't expect non-Christians to behave as if they are Christians. So so I think a lot of British evangelicalism, they won't talk about abortion much, but quietly they'll say to you, well, of course, yes, I, I'm pro-life and I would never have an abortion, but you can't expect, we can't, you know, impose our morals or expect people to behave uh when they don't have faith what what are we to make of that sort of statement so there's a lot i think that can be said about that again to to, to steal manit i think we um have in mind when we, when we say things like that and think about this issue of legislating morality we have in mind um things like um john bunyan being thrown into prison because he was a free church minister preaching the gospel without a license. Um, and as the evangelical scene in the UK has become progressively, I think, more influenced by nonconformist churches, um, of which I'm a member of the church within the, the FIC, Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, as the sort of um, Anglican evangelicals and Nonconformity evangelicals have sort of coalesced into an evangelical coalition. Um, that kind of uh, distinctly free church concern when it comes to kind of religious liberty and religious toleration comes to the forefront of our minds. And again, we then become sort of uh, adopted certain assumptions that are really have their origins in America about um, religious establishments and religious compulsion and coercion um, that, that because America dominates the conversation, we, we, we absorb it over here um so those are our concerns that kind of you know religious religious coercion people being thrown into prison for sectarian differences that kind of thing um that's what that's what 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 we're concerned with but that's distinctly different from um questions about what the government is for and questions of political theology so this is why i think it's really urgent for us to be holding a a conversation about british political theology uh i think i can point to many 
uh, American colleagues, and we something we tried to do at the Davenant Institute, doing very good work on political theology in an American context. But I think in the UK and within the evangelical world, it's just something we have not thought about. Um, and there are good reasons for that. We've had more pressing, well, more pressing is maybe a way I wouldn't want to phrase it actually, but some pressing first order issues of Christian orthodoxy. You know, the Anglicans have been trying to keep their parishes. They don't want to be kicked out by the heretics within their own denomination um, and, and so forth. And so thinking hard and thinking historically and biblically about what God's design for government is, is not something we necessarily give a lot of thought to. And yet we know that scriptures do say things about the Bible um so about the government scriptures do say things about the bible as well about the government um but i think we have a few kind of key texts that we rattle off and then move on so when it comes to questions of what moral should the government legislate we think well jesus said my kingdom is not of this world and so um uh, there shouldn't be any um any kind of religious establishment any any christian morals reflected in in the states it should just be kind of neutral um Really what we've done, though, is absorb the assumptions of kind of post-World War II secular liberalism, where we assume there's a kind of neutral public square. You can't legislate morality. will be values neutral. And we just want to let everybody um, live as much in harmony with one another as they can. Mm. I think, But the government should sort of basically keep order. And then we go to Romans 13. You know, he wields the sword. So, you know, they're responsible for kind of punishing criminals um and you know honor caesar give pay your taxes yeah. um it tends to not go much further than that but i think even if we look at those um key texts that we turn to when it comes to political questions you find actually the bible seems to assume a lot more than we tend to about the kind of moral awareness and moral obligations of the state um and this is being written in the days of the roman empire <laughs> um which is a challenge to both sides and to people who are you know people like us who will be want to be very critical of the state's attitude to abortion um we can be very critical of all the ways that the roman empire um abused the sanctity of human life and yet peter still says to honor the emperor so that's a challenge on this side but then on the other side um <clears throat> in romans 13 um paul says that the magistrate uh, the rulers are God's servants to, yes, judge evil, but also to reward the good. Which is actually more puzzling, I think, because what is Paul thinking there? He's thinking, assuming that the state, this Roman ruler, is actually sufficiently able to discern both good and evil and to reward the good and punish the evil. We usually only think about the evil. And the punishment thereof and this kind of very restrictive almost oddly for you know brits who would never want to be this kind of libertarian view of the government mm. um that it's a bare minimum kind of thing just punish crime actually no it's meant to reward the good as well um and so there's this ethical assumption there of what actually a non-christian pagan roman government can know um similar thing in um uh paul's epistles to timothy um where he talks about the need to work hard um to provide for your family and the one who doesn't do that is worse than an unbeliever. So again, there's this assumption on the ethical norms, the ethical kind of baseline for unbelievers, that even the pagans know that they should provide for their family. Similar move made in, um, when Jesus is talking about being uh, fathers giving good gifts. Yeah. You know, if you down here know how to be uh, a good father, uh, how much more your heavenly father. So I think 
run it in romans one would be another place um the kind of mm. moral assumptions that are clear to everybody um this just seems to run through scripture all human beings have a certain level of moral knowledge that we can expect them to have and historically the christian tradition um would kind of call this natural law there is a, a natural sense of what is right and wrong um that runs through everybody it can go wrong um, through various reasons, through kind of habit that sets in and whatnot. Um, but you, you will almost never find a total absence of it. C.S. Lewis talks about this, talks about it in mere Christianity, um, kind of addressing the question of of, uh, of universal sense of right and wrong, especially talks about it in his uh, collection of lectures, The Abolition of Man. Um, so, you know, we can all agree about C.S. Lewis. So if he says it, he must be onto something. Um, and so that thing of we can't expect non-christians to live like christians um okay maybe that means that we you know we don't legislate certain sectarian um specific things about how to exercise the christian faith we can however apparently expect the state to know both good and evil to reward the good and to um, punish the evil we can expect unbelievers to know the basic social and moral obligations that they have to their family and so it's not really a question of whether people are kind of living like Christians and you're legislating specifically Christian morality, but it's a question of can you expect people to live like human beings mm. um, and the states to govern them as such? Mm. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's very helpful, that distinction between living Christianly and just being a, a basically moral human being, which, of course, we're not claiming that that morality is is enough to save someone, but it is something that god seems to require at a basic level uh, and and assume as you say can the mother forget the, the child at her breast and and mm. even you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children i often point to these texts to prove that it's an assumption in scripture that even pagans will look after their babies mm -hmm. and therefore that child sacrifice is such um an outstanding evil um that uh w we can actually um, expect to see change on an issue like that prior to seeing mass conversion mm -hmm. um, and so, so so to go to go further on that um you know think of cain um cain does not need to be told that murder is wrong mm. god tells him sin is crouching at the door mm. um clearly expecting cain to know that this is a simple thing to do just from just from what cain knows as a fallen human being about other human beings from what he can observe with his eyes um so Cain does not need the um, uh, sixth commandment to be given at Sinai to know that murder is wrong. Mm. It is there. It's built in. Yes, um, you know, scripture will talk about there's kind of sort of no condemnation under the law between Adam and Moses and, and whatnot. But that doesn't mean that Cain isn't in the wrong, clearly, because he's punished and sent off with the mark of Cain. Um, so why does God... There are times when God gives laws which... Um, restate or reiterate or re-strengthen things that are already there in the, the moral law of the universe and the you know the grand christian consensus over almost all of christian history is that the ten commandments are the natural law that they are um basic moral principles which actually apply without god needing to restate them from sinai mm. um the fact that he does um provides further clarity provides um the fact that we are then without excuse um and then all the kind of case law of the old testament that spins out what those commands can mean in practice and that then follows on from that um but again just it seems very clear that there is a moral sense that people can have without the special revelation of god's commandments yeah. 
Yes, and I think what you can see as well in the Old Testament, when uh, the prophets, for example, confront the nations around, they don't tend to criticize them for not observing, uh, I say tend to, I don't think they ever criticize them for not following ceremonial laws mm -hmm. or specifically Jewish um, mosaic law, but they are criticized for the shedding of innocent blood in particular mm -hmm. um, and other um, basic moral issues. And I think there is something comparable there, which is quite interesting because I mean, help us out in terms of when you say natural law is, do you have in mind as well, that's what in Romans 1, the conscience particularly relates to? That's the that's the sort of close relationship between the human conscience and natural law, is that? Yeah, the, the conscience would be more sort of the the internal kind of apprehension of that thing. It's it's what your, uh, your soul, your mind, you know, people get very precise in the kind of theological passing of this but you know it's what it's what internally you do with what is externally evident yeah. um you know we want related but distinct from natural law is say the question of natural theology which is things we can know about god from yeah. from creation and so in creation we have natural revelation mm -hmm. you know the, the stars the heavens they declare the glory of god that is the natural revelation and then the things that we can know about god without uh special revelation his natural revelation, his invisible qualities, his divine power, things that Roman one, Romans 1 talks about. Um, similar with natural law and the conscience, natural law are these, are these moral principles which should be evident to us all, you know, the most basic being do good and not evil. Um, everybody ag agrees with that. Then the question is, how do you define good and evil? Well, you know, um, we, could, we, could, we could go down that rabbit hole. Um, but so natural law is kind of what's out there and then the conscience is what we do kind of internally with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think that's helpful because I think I, I find myself a lot more optimistic than many other Christians in just how much change we can pursue and expect to see in in the in the immediate future if we'll only do the work of showing the humanity of the unborn child, showing mm -hmm. the inhumanity of abortion. It really does prosper chiefly um, on being hidden. And as with other outstanding injustices I'm thinking of, um, the Holocaust, the uh, the transatlantic slave trade, in various ways, all of these depended on two things, uh, downplaying or just completely obscuring the humanity of the victim and also denying or obscuring the inhumanity of what was being done to them. And I don't think you can overturn everything that we would call immoral just by exposing in an, in an essentially a non-Christian country but there are some evils that are so egregious that we really can actually because they are so against natural uh, law they're so against the conscience our very instincts maternal paternal instincts uh, something very sinister um, has taken place in a nation where things like this are happening uh, but we don't have to wait for mass revival before we can see any positive changes so i think there is a i think um the natural law and the conscience maternal instinct for example provide a sort of common ground actually for mm -hmm. us to work with um although in in other contexts i would be 100 percent saying we need to go back to philosophical roots and we do need mm -hmm. to argue from a christian worldview to explain why such things are wrong and mm -hmm. and uh, and it is true of course there's a connection between the the de-christianization of our nation and the sorts of things that have been legislated. But perhaps we can go on then to to uh, my third uh, saying, which relates to this. Um, a lot of British evangelicals will say, look, the mission of the church 
Um, and what we need to focus on is simply, we just need to preach the gospel. That's what we're here to do. We just need to preach the gospel and plant churches. And A, that's what we're here for. And B, that's what's going to naturally transform the nation anyway. That, that'll just lead to this kind of automatic um, transformation of society. Uh, but all we need to focus on is just preaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, to on on paper, I certainly 100% agree with a fairly narrow definition of the church's mission, which is to proclaim the gospel and teach all people to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, and then, to, again, to steel man the concerns there, um, the people say our mission is to preach the gospel, not to change the world, not to do social renewal, um, etc. Um, we've touched on this, but maybe worth here then talking about it more at length. Um, for since yeah, you know, since arguably the mid to late eighteen hundreds, um, Orthodox smaller Orthodox Christians, evangelicals, especially within the Church of England, have been fighting for their lives on basic matters of theological orthodoxy, on the inspiration of Scripture the virgin birth, um, uh, the exclusivity of the gospel, uh, now issues of human sexuality, you know, it's all, it's, it's all, it's all, it's all blowing up and people have left the church. People have been forced out of their parishes, had, you know, awkward, difficult deanery synod meetings. You know, it's all there. And so then evangelicals are understandably wanting to pour their energies and their money into the maintenance of orthodoxy. Um, and are 100%, um, get that move um i think the issue is that we in doing that process have rather become like uh, a dog chasing a car in terms of we're preaching the gospel we're focusing hard on evangelism okay you get someone you evangelize them successfully you want to disciple them disciple has become a verb at some point um in recent evangelical history what do you do with them then other than tell them to go out and do exactly the same thing that you've done which is just bring more people in bring more people in to do what to be disciples of jesus so what does being a disciple mean it means being a disciple maker and we just get stuck in this endless loop of disciples making disciples making disciples making disciples with no real robust understanding of what being a disciple is um other than maybe kind of individual piety do your quiet time sin less um and no bigger understanding of what that means when you are faced with injustice uh when you are faced with uh the state failing to exercise its basic duties um being a good citizen is part of being a good christian disciple thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of about abortion i hope you're appreciating these podcasts and if you are can i ask for your help in getting these vital messages to more people. We're delighted that we can get these to people free of charge. Uh, but that's not free for us to produce. It costs something like three to four hundred pounds a month to get these podcasts produced. And I wonder if you could help us, partner with us financially. Uh, many of us will have uh, an Amazon Prime subscription or some kind of streaming platform to the tune of six, seven, eight pounds a month. I wonder if you consider, as it were, taking out a subscription. Uh, with us. If you could donate, say, £8 a month, if we had about 40 people donating around £8 a month, just £8 a month, uh, that would help us to continue to do these podcasts uh, free of charge for anyone who uh, wants to listen in. And this is the only podcast 
specifically about abortion in the UK. It's the greatest injustice, not only of our time, but in all history. Would you help us uh, to bring these life-saving messages to more people? And don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe. Do send this in particular to your church leaders and, uh, and anyone else you think might be interested. Thank you so much for your support and uh, I'll let you get back to the episode now. And if we kind of take what we've just said about the obligations of the state and how it's meant to rule, well, being a Christian means being a good British citizen and engaging when your um, rulers are failing in their basic um, basic um, duties. So I, th- I think that is the problem that we, in in sensing we are, we are in a nation that is essentially post-Christian, wanting to reach more people, putting a lot of emphasis in, into evangelism, um, we have truncated our definition of discipleship. Um, and it's just become a kind of pyramid scheme where it's about getting bums on seats. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I think that actually reminds me of something I myself said. I think I was maybe 17, 18, 19. I forget how, how old I was exactly, but uh, an older Christian uh, who was a kind of uh, a youth leader at a camp I was at, I can't remember if he asked me to share my testimony or he asked me to, something came up whereby I was meant to explain um, how I found uh, the Christian life to be fulfilling or sort of what's what the sort of purpose of the Christian life. And that was pretty much my answer was just getting more people in. You know, that's, the, that's and that's and that's good, of course, I believe in that and I certainly have a heart for evangelism. But, but I remember him actually correcting me and saying, well, it's not just about that. There's more to the Christian life than just getting mm-hmm. others in. But that was that was kind of, you could say the air I was breathing, perhaps, um, in some of the evangelicalism that was around me, was there is this com- the, the, this focus very much on on evangelism, which is good, um, but the conception of discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, rather narrow. And I think an interesting thing to go back to is, of course, the Great Commission, mm-hmm. uh, which which many people who will promote such an idea and. Uh, um, which, as I say, to, to an extent, I, I absolutely agree with. But it's it's the definition of making disciples, isn't it? Because then Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I've I've commanded you. And and for that, you've got to go back right through the whole of Matthew's gospel. And perhaps Matthew's gospel especially mm-hmm. uh, gives us a wonderful um, insight into uh, what we these days might call the ethical code or how we're to engage in the world, being salt and light and all these sorts of things, which can easily uh wash over us um as over familiar sayings but actually that that the life of engaged righteousness and justice in matthew's gospel in particular you could say is so rich and i think mm-hmm. i think i think there, there are two things that that strike me with regard to um the sort of focus on the gospel that precludes saying or doing anything about an issue like abortion i think one is if you just read your Bible from cover to cover, how can you possibly come away thinking that the shedding of innocent blood and in particular child sacrifice mm-hmm. in and around our churches, I mean, it's happening in our churches, it's happening around our churches. How on earth can you come away from reading your Bible from cover to cover thinking that's just not really relevant? Yeah, I, I think I think that is related to what we were talking about before, which is the loss of a sense of of the natural law and the role of the state because yes we see this quite expansive attitude towards injustice in the old testament um 
and the the prophets calling down judgment on on Israel for its injustice and you know detailed legislation in the Levitical law about um how to deal with injustice and whatnot um then of course a significant change happens in the arrival of the new covenant and the the law is fulfilled and um we we do not live under the the distinctives of kind of you know Jewish identity markers from from the old testament um and the new testament is then sort of you know comparatively light on its sort of um distinct uh commands you know there aren't 613 laws in the new testament um yet if 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 you think that the only thing that gives morality is the distinct revelation of the old testament law well then of course you can think that because god said there were 613 things we shouldn't do in the old testament and now uh he's you know massively trimmed the number in the new testament and that's that's what we need to focus on but if you're actually kind of pay attention to the bigger sweep of things and you see actually know what is right and wrong is is woven into reality um far more deeply than anything that god revealed to moses on sinai um then your your attitude would be very different you you have to come away from the bible like you said seeing okay the old, the old testament law has been abrogated that the, the nation of israel um is whatever you think about the nation of israel in in the new covenant is not what it was um yet god's commandments about what is right and wrong um for all people um remain remain standing yeah that's helpful and i think sometimes we Christians can speak about Christian morality or the laws and even even in the new covenant the things that we still do that are Christian the behaviors almost as if they have no essential relationship to mm-hmm. creation and the way the world is and how our bodies are made and it's kind of we'll stick with them because we're Christians and that's what we know we need to do but we don't think they have any essential moral sense to them. they're arbitrary yeah, yeah it's it's just you know well they're called divine command theory you know it's just wrong because god said it was wrong yeah um which you know that's, this is one of the biggest philosophical problems in history plato's euthyphro is this exact issue you know they're on their way and there's a man you know going to take his father to court um and the question that, of this platonic dialogue is um are things wrong because the gods say they're wrong um or what do the god did the gods say they're wrong because they're wrong yeah and um with, you know with with what we call a positive command which is a sort of specific stipulation to do a thing th- they are somewhat arbitrary so that's uh, let's say the positive command to um to perform the lord's supper you know take in, t- take the bread eat it take the wine drink it do, do this in remembrance of me um before god gave that command there were no ethics attached to the the kind of ritual performance of you know those same actions now there is if christians aren't doing that that they're, they're disobedient one day that that will be uh, abrogated and dissolved when Jesus when Jesus comes again, and so you know those specific sort of contingent commands are are somewhat arbitrary. Though you know, bread is tied to the the just the natural understanding of what bread is, and wine is tied to the natural understanding of what wine is, and the same with you know, water and baptism. So yes, the kind of positive command is somewhat arbitrary, um, but not all commands are kind of positive commands not all laws are, are positive laws um speed limits is, is is the perfect example you know the law the moral law of speed limits is the preservation of life mm-hmm. what you set the speed limit as varies um mm-hmm. on depending on, on numerous factors yeah 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 thank you that's, that's that's helpful and it does connect i think with really whether we perceive 
sin as truly bad? Is mm -hmm. is sin really bad, or is it just not how we do things as Christians? Yeah. It's it's bad because it's not like God. Yeah, yeah, and and therefore it's bad for everyone. It yeah. has no good side to it. Um, we're not being unloving by discouraging sinful, wicked acts. Actually, that's loving, and and that doesn't replace evangelism. It doesn't. It's not a substitute but it's still a good thing and it's mm -hmm. never a good thing to do the opposite to encourage wickedness and yet i think we we and i i i grieve at the way i see words like compassion and and christian love and so on used quite often even with regard to issues like abortion mm -hmm. um as if compassion means just helping people or encouraging people to do whatever it is they want to do um as if as if yeah sin is immaterial it's just that's how we think of things but it's not how they need to think of things um the, the other thing i wanted to to mention so so one is just yeah you can't come away from your scriptures uh, and uh, and miss the gravity of the shedding of innocent blood as, and you, as you've helpfully pointed out that's not arbitrary that's that's very much related to how god made things we're made mm -hmm. in his image and that's what mm -hmm. the shedding of innocent blood is is pegged to, isn't it, in Genesis 9, it's because we're made in the image of God that the shedding of innocent blood is outlawed or is so serious. But then there's what, and I'd be interested to hear what you make of this. Something that I find very difficult doing this work is that often I meet with Christians who, including evangelicals, who are not, who are not only, I think, missing that biblical directive and emphasis on the importance of innocent blood and our duty to stand up against that as Christians, as disciples, it seems to me that some Christians even, they lack even basic humanity in response to the shedding of innocent blood. It's even if we didn't have our Bibles, isn't it just obvious that if you see a baby being tortured to death by adults, just as a human being, um, we, that ought to just, I shouldn't even have to make an argument for why that's wrong or, or persuade you or cajole you from, from scripture. Um, what, what's going on when practicing church going gospel believing people um, aren't even responding at a level, which I would say is, is just demanded by basic humanity and it's natural law, let alone revelation and scripture and our Christian faith. I don't. Uh, maybe it's an unfair question. Maybe there, uh, I don't know what I'm expecting you to say to that. But have have we become so single-minded and distracted by sort of churchianity that that business as usual in the church has just somehow squeezed out some of the really obvious stuff? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. What 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 do we make of that? I think um, it wouldn't be. It Again, you, you could ask the same question of sort of people who felt were not constantly morally vexed by the realities of the slave trade, even though they knew it went on. Mm. Um, there is a degree of understanding needed for people who just generally go about their lives and don't see these things um, and have kind of heads down and the daily cares of life to get on with and it's very hard to extract oneself from that to be mindful of things going on kind of beyond beyond your purview um 
having so it's, it's not a distinctly modern thing having said that mm. i think that in a digital age um the the kind of unreality of human suffering created by the fact that we see everything on this on a screen so much kind of kills real empathy um and I, I kind of I subscribe to a thesis that uh, Joe Rigney, who some people might know, who's a desiring guard guy out of out of kind of John Piper's stable, he's written quite critically about the kind of the sin of empathy, um, which is a provocative title. That um, essentially, you know, we live in an age where um, we we massively value empathising with people, um, but actually that means that we don't challenge them, and um, and that empathy is sort of down to kind of psychological suffering, um, which comes into the abortion issue on the kind of caveat of, you know, if a mother's mental health is going to be affected, well, she, she should be able to have an abortion. Um, so we're quite tuned into this sort of um, feeling people suffering through empathy and kind of their hysterical upsets and perceived harm. Harm has now been redefined in kind of emotional terms. Um, we get that and that is sort of signaled very amplified very much through, through social media social media is a kind of a, amplifies that in a way that pre-social media internet didn't um i think social media prioritizes kind of uh quite feminized forms of social interaction um where things are kind of done um emotively and by appeals to emotion and and whatnot um and less with kind of you know strong discursive argument which characterized you know the early internet when it was just nerds arguing on forums um so we have on one sense a kind of deeply empathetic culture to a fault um created by the internet but then the fact that you know images of real human suffering can flash up on our screens um alongside you know tiktok videos and cat compilations and the fact you can access all this in a moment you can find um yeah kind of holocaust atrocity images um just the drop of a hat um and or you can download telegram on your phone and you can get in a, a group chat with hamas and just find the unfiltered footage of them slaughtering jews and now we're into the ai era where um the hamas atrocities are probably you know that this is probably the first ai conflict with ai misinformation um and we're, we're essentially seeing the end of war photography and the ability to be kind of compellingly moved by images i think because we now know we can't trust them um all of that basic you know there's a lot there but kind of washes together to i think just dull our ability to care about real suffering we're tuned into kind of histrionic personal privileged suffering a lot of the time people broadcasting their grievances online but when it comes to kind of accessing real injustice and real suffering, if it comes to you through the same medium where kind of your friends sending you funny gifts, the human brain, the human, the whole human person is not designed to kind of differentiate the two from funny content in the group chat to images of unborn children who've been slaughtered in the womb. I think that's part of where that lack of feeling and empathy comes from. We are so tied to the fake world of our screens that we lose a grip on the real world of injustice. No. Thank you. That's yeah, very, very helpful thoughts there. It, it is the great challenge, I think, of any social reform movement. How do you get this real issue 
to where people can see it, feel it, sense it. And, and we do live in an age which is, I suppose, sets us apart even from movements as recent as the civil rights movement, where the information people are exposed to on a daily basis is overwhelming. And there's that kind of perhaps that issue fatigue, there's that empathy redirection, as you say, to, to the, the, the voices that uh, are loudest and um, presents a, a special challenge for us to be those voices for the voiceless and mm. um, I, I did promise four sayings but we actually kind of covered one of them so i won't i won't bother going over that again what, what, what was the fourth one out of curiosity well it was it was kind of we 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 ended up um it was really the kind of give to caesar what is caesar's sort of right okay uh you know um uh just just kind of pay your taxes be a good citizen and leave the government to think about the rest um but we sort of covered that so i want to give you the opportunity reese for final word um Drawing these things together, what what for you are the key? So we've talked a bit about what the church thinks are the issues of the day, or perhaps historically, we. I think some of the evangelical church is, is still speaking and, and acting. It seems to me as though we're we're still in the 16th century, and the big issue is is soteriology. It's got to make sure we all know it's salvation by grace, mm-hmm. by faith in Christ, and and um, as if, as if you know, that kind of Roman Catholicism is still our biggest problem. Um, but as you mentioned, in later centuries, there were other forms of theological liberalism. And then more recently, there's the sexuality stuff. And no doubt all of these issues have been issues and some of them still are. Some of them may be less so. I think so, so, some, some victories have been fairly decisively won, at least within evangelicalism. So we talked about what some of the issues are uh, or what they're thought to be. What do you think, if you were to say, here are the, here's the one or here are the two or three major blind spots or issues or problems that we as British evangelicals need to face up to and, and get back in line with God's word on, what, what for you are those? What, what, what's your prayer that we um, manage to, to see victory in, 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 in these days, in this generation of the church? Hmm. Yeah, I think I'll try and do, I'll try and do this quick. Four things come to mind. Two, uh, two kind of topical theological things. One, a kind of pragmatic, how do we change things, and then fourth, a sort of moral character thing. Um, on the topical things, are basically things we've discussed, the political question. Um, I think we need a, a renewal of British political theology um, and to think again, actually, what um, what what we think the state is for. And I think even those of us from a nonconformist backgrounds, and the fact is that evangelical Anglicans are essentially nonconformist in almost every conceivable way. And um, this was said, has been said by significant Anglican members of the UK evangelical world, some of whom have, have passed on, um, that this is somewhere where the Anglican the evangelicals need to get their house in order because in theory they're, they're actually committed to a Christian nation, um, but they don't, don't really care about it. Um even in the states we're doing some work on this at dominant at the minute you know the idea that america is a fully secular republic um is nonsense um even in its kind of disestablishmentarianism no state church its assumptions it was always assumed that this is a christian country um and the christian morality prevails here um so I, i think we radically need to kind of rethink our political theology um and then uh that's the first kind of theological thing i think we need to change um second is, is our anthropology our, our understanding of human personhood 
what that means. Um, this isn't just a question of when does life begin, um, but it's all the wider questions related to abortion, um, questions of um, uh, whether it's transgenderism, whether it's um, the wider kind of medical industrial complex that um, changes our personhood. Um, people haven't heard of her. They should read Mary Harrington, who's a, a non-Christian thinker, wrote a book called Feminism Against Progress. She just goes to town on the pill. And I think that evangelicals have not reckoned nearly enough with the realities of things like the pill and even it's just it's let alone the ethics of the pill itself it's knock-on effects on how we view the human person if you can just change its basic functions by popping a pill in its mouth um so i think yeah changing our political thinking changing our anthropology and our appreciation of the human person um third in kind of how we may within a british context activate change here um i've written a bit about this recently i think british evangelicalism by virtue of having become a fairly small parish um, because of the hostilities and the fight for orthodoxy that we've mentioned, has become a, a fairly clerical uh, um, parish. Um, our, all of our leading voices are pastors of local churches, and I love pastors of local churches, um, and I, I love the pastors of my local church and, and, and our elders. Um, but it is not um, should not be incumbent on pastors of local churches to carry all of the public speaking and all of the kind of hard theological scholarly thinking that needs to be done on these things. Um, so I think we need to invest more in our kind of intellectuals and thinkers and scholars. But I think that we need these kind of renewed theological ideas to come in at the level of the pastorate. So I think theological education needs to be less, this is how you exegete a couple of books of the Bible and these are the skills you need for pastoral ministry. I think we need a lot more ethical formation on these kind of social issues because the learning get worse in the future so i think if change doesn't happen at the level of seminaries and theological education it it, it will not trickle down um to to the pews um so two theological things anthropology politics pragmatic change i think we need to invest in our theological thinkers and think about theological education and then fourthly on the kind of um moral point and maybe the the moral fiber that we need i was really struck actually by a thing you did recently um dave on uh, courage and cowardice um we i've talked about why i think we look down on our american cousins and the um fight that they've made there um and to be clear i know that roe v wade was not the end and the fact that they haven't done some of the hard work of convincing hearts and minds is now coming out in america um that said um i think we need to get over the the snobbery and perhaps confront the fact that uh we do make cowardice an excusable sin i think the fact that you pointed out cowards are excluded from the kingdom of god just really struck me um cowardice is a really hard sin to address like if you call someone a coward it's like, unless they're kind of cut to the quick there it's almost as if you you've net you've lost a hearing forever it's like kind of trying to tell someone that they're a bad parent like there's it's a it's a risky thing because 99% of the time no one's going to listen to you if, if you tell someone they're a bad parent even if they are they probably won't listen to you because it's the last thing in the world anybody wants to hear that they have made a bad decision for their children same with cowardice um but i think that we need to address the fact that it may not just be because we don't want to be like our vulgar american cousins who have sold their souls it may be because we are often quite cowardly that we don't speak up about this and um, whether that's within or without the church Reese, thank you so much. I've really benefited from this conversation. Thank you for your your time, your insights. Um, you're a good batsman. I, I've I've bowled some uh, some fairly unfair 
um, balls at you today and you've you've responded to them all um, with aplomb. And I've learned a new word today, steel man. Did you invent that one or am I just slow to the... my? Oh, no, that's, that's you know, yes, you know, in an argument, so maybe I should have explained it, you know, rather than setting up the straw man, yeah. the, the kind of facile caricature of your opponent's position that they actually wouldn't recognize set up the steel man the strongest version of their argument in mm. ways that they would say yes you've act you've act i got this from tim keller i think originally okay. you know you, okay. you should state your opponent's views in such a way that they will say yes that is what i believe yeah you've yeah. described it correctly yeah. yeah well thanks for teaching me a new word i'll uh no doubt seek to use that in future thanks so much reese and um again please folks do do um look him up uh lots of helpful stuff we obviously focused on these issues today but Reese has been writing on all sorts of different things. Uh, commend him to you. So do uh, look him up. Please do share this, particularly uh, share it with your pastors, with people in your churches. We'd love this to be of help to, in particular, British evangelicals, but also uh, the wider church. And um, please do do share and comment and stuff like that. It just helps to get this message out to more um, people. Thank you so much, Reese. Thanks everyone for listening and. Hopefully we will see you next week.